Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Neil White, and from Backpage, this is Between the Lines, a podcast that tells the stories behind great sports writing. This week, that description might be stretched just a little bit, but this is one we've talked about for a while, and it will be, for some of you at least, a lot of fun. Today, I'm talking to Ian McIntosh and Kenny Miller about a book I worked with them on eight years ago. It's called Football Manager Stole My Life, and it was published in 2012 to coincide with the 20th anniversary of the first iteration of the computer game that now bears that name. So right off the bat, if you haven't played the game Football Manager, or at least if you're not familiar with it, this might be a different experience for you. Stick with it. It might have some value as a window into a strange room. Before we hear from Ian and Kenny, I want to tell you a little bit about the genesis of this project. Before Martin Gregg and James Porteous and I started Backpage, I was a sports journalist for the Sunday Times in Scotland and I had developed a couple of book ideas on the side. One of them was a book about Football Manager and the weird, obsessive second life pursued by the huge number of football fans who play it. No publisher wanted to take that project on. I later found out Ian McIntosh was having exactly the same trouble with his own version of the same pitch. Then, around the time we started Backpage, I found a book called I'm a Lebowski, You're a Lebowski about the fan culture around my favourite film, The Big Lebowski. There was something about the way that book was put together, weaving interviews with the filmmakers in with fan stories and trivia about the movie. It was a template in content and in design terms that I thought could work for a book about Football Manager, and we kept referring to the Lebowski book as we produced this one. Not for the first time, The Big Lebowski had pointed me in the direction of Better Living. Martin and I agreed the book had to have the blessing of Sports Interactive, the team that make the game. We went to their office in London early on and pitched the idea to them. A book about their company, for which we were asking their cooperation, but over which they would have no control. At the end of that meeting, Miles Jacobson, the head of the studio, said he understood the idea and that we could have all the help we wanted, as long as we agreed to donate a royalty from every copy to War Child the charity supported by sales of the game. And for the last eight years, sales of that book have continued to raise money for Warchild. Miles arranged the interviews with himself and the Collier brothers, of and Paul, who built the game and founded Sports Interactive. Those interviews gave us the backbone for the book. He sent us the entire archive of press cuttings and artwork and correspondence from 20 years of Football Manager. That brought the design to life. All in all, the team at SI Kieran Brennan, the brothers Kolya, and especially Miles, are something else. So, let's begin our walkthrough of the book. It begins with the first interview section on the origins of the game. This includes a lot of the visual archive that SI gave us, including the game notes for the prototype. Next up is the first special assignment for our own Football Manager-style signing, Ian McIntosh. 
Today, Ian is the Howard Hughes of football media, all but invisible from the public eye as he runs Muddy Knees Media, a podcast production company that brings you, amongst many others, the Totally Football Show and its talented offspring. But as all football manager players know very well, the key to recruitment is to acquire your talent when they are undervalued by the market. 2011, I was living in South Shields and my wife was heavily pregnant um, and I was working as a football journalist for a Singaporean newspaper and just starting to do a little bit of work for ESPN as well, um, sort of bouncing between Sunderland and Newcastle games. And Newcastle were quite good in those days, remember, uh, under Alan Pardew. Um, they were putting up a challenge for a Champions League place. It was an extraordinary time to be alive. Um, when I caught wind of some enterprising chaps in Scotland who'd managed to um, get a football manager book going, which I I had tried to do myself and hadn't been able to convince a single publisher that there was any point in doing it. And I had done exactly the same. I remember I remember having this conversation with you uh, at the time that, that we'd both basically had the same experience, which was to take the idea of some kind of football manager book around every publisher in the land uh, to no avail. And we'd responded in different ways. You had set up your own publishing company in order to publish the aforementioned book and I'd gone out and got shitfaced for two years. <laughs> I still don't know which is the correct response. We asked Ian on board because of his talent as a comic writer and we had two tasks that we thought were perfect for him. For the first, we asked him to load up a classic version of the game, Championship Manager 2001-2002, and run a sim for 10 years, reporting back at the end of each season on the world the game was creating, who was winning what, the big transfers, the progress of some of the game's most beloved characters. <laughs> that was about the last time in my life I had that sort of spare time available, um, just before my daughter came along. I'd done it with the original version of the game, the sort of fresh out the box version. And I'd played it through six seasons and taken copious notes and drafted up chapters because it was actually, it was genuinely time consuming getting you know, a rickety old laptop to run through all of that stuff. And you couldn't obviously just put it on holiday because then you'd sort of, you'd miss the flow. And anyway, the bastard thing crashed uh, after about, it must have been 20 to 30 hours of work and it crashed halfway through. So the the one in the book had to be redone with a patched version that wouldn't crash. But but that was all right. It, it, it was like a sort of full dress rehearsal. But I remember the absolute horror of having these pages and pages and pages of notes on a virtual football world that meant even less than they ever did originally because the, the game had gone. I looked back this morning before our call on, your, on the chapter and it was a fantastic read, a riotous laugh. As you kind of went through it all, you kept a particular eye on the sort of championship manager slash football manager legends, the players who, who are sort of famous for anybody who plays the game, but who possibly didn't have careers in the real world that quite emulated their virtual careers. I, I seem to remember Gareth Southgate got himself a really good managerial job at a time when, you know, that, that kind of thing would have seemed impossible. Yeah. I think it might be Man U. Gareth Southgate gets the Manchester United job after cutting his teeth at Arbroath. I'm not sure if he went straight from Arbroath to Old Trafford. I mean, very few people have taken that journey. Patrick Vieira, Arsenal to Barcelona in 2002 was one of my favourite transfers. 2004, Zidane to Man United. Uh, in the same summer, Tonton Zola Makoku to Ipswich. Chono Samba to Newcastle. Yep. 
Yeah, all, all sounds fair. Presumably Mike Duff is running through it. I'm glad that you mentioned Mike Duff and I knew that you would famously your favourite. Mike Duff played for, in this order, Cheltenham, Darlington, Wolves, Brighton and QPR. So he never really cracks the big time. Career average of over 7.5 out of 10. See, he's only the right back Gary Neville could have been. Can you remember sort of how long that, that process would have taken you to run that sim and also to to do the writing because it's no mean feat. Yeah, I think it was the, it was a simulation of the game that took the longest because, of course, you you couldn't just leave it to run automatically. Or you could. It's just that you would then miss loads of stuff. You'd miss the order in which things happen, the reasons for managers getting sacked and things like that. So it really was just hours and hours of sitting there pressing continue and pressing continue and then going back and checking. The writing bit, I don't think, really took too long. It, it flowed very, very easily because you're basically just... You know, I, I was spending my actual working day just watching football and consuming football and writing about football. And this was really only a slight deviation, a slight difference in the fact that this football was not real um, and was contained entirely and exclusively on the uh, on the rickety old laptop. Um, so that, that bit was relatively easy. But yeah, there, there was a, a lot of time. And I definitely didn't want to tell too many people what I was doing all day. <laughs> it's, it is comedy writing, though. And, you know, Martin and I have done this series Between the Lines for a couple of years now. And I don't think we've done anything with comedy writing before. And that's what this is. And I just wonder if you have to go back over any of this stuff and sort of sharpen a joke or drop a joke. There was always something completely absurd anyway about the act of simulating a computer game and then trying to write about it. And then, if anything, the straighter you played it, the more natural comedy that came out of it felt if you know what I mean it was it was all so ridiculous anyway you didn't have to push too hard um and I think there's always a, a question when you're or when you're writing anything really that you you come back to it after a cup of tea and a bit of a walk and you think all right I can sharpen that bit I can take that bit out I can cut one word off that um but then you can find yourself going around in circles and doing that for days and days and days and never quite getting what you want um, I think some of the worst things I've ever written have been the things that I've spent the most time on. But this one, I never never really had to give too much thought to. It, it kind of wrote itself. Next up is another interview section that explains the role 90s UK indie music played in this story and was a great excuse to use pictures of a very young Blur and Jesus Jones in our book. Then comes our other recruit. This one, what football manager players would call a wonder kid, in 2020, Kenny Miller is head of communications for Hibs, the club he supports. In 2011, he was working for the Sunday Post as a sports writer, so Martin and I knew him from the Scottish football beat. He was and remains a very nice guy, great at relationship building. His first task, to tell the story of the incredible scouting network football manager had built over 20 years, almost certainly the biggest in the world. These are the guys who build the database that has, year after year, predicted the rise of some of the world's best players and has been frequently used by those within football to expand their own databases. It ranges from guys working in normal office jobs that do this to the wee small hours outside of that to the Portuguese version who was Porto's chief scout at the time. Now, this was a guy that had not only discovered Deco, I think, in the, in the game, but he'd pretty much played a big part in discovering him in, in real life. So this is Zaychiera, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. 
so the story with him and Deco was absolutely fantastic. He he saw Deco, who obviously would go on to play for Portugal many many times and play for Barcelona amongst others, um, win the European Cup with Porto, play for Chelsea, um, and he arrived in Portugal from Brazil, aged twenty, and. He was signed initially by Benfica, who, without playing him at all, immediately loaned him out to a struggling team in Division 2. And Zeichera happened to see him play his first game. And he looked like a very slight Brazilian kid who was struggling in the rain. And then he saw him when the weather turned good and he got a bit more used to Portuguese football. And initially, so this is probably game four or game five that Deco played in Portugal. And straight away, he contacted football manager and, and got them to make sure that Deco became a, a very, very good player in the game. And then you spoke to Christophe Thurier in Belgium, um, who spoke about how he what, uh, phoned the father of Thibaut Courtois before Courtois, in fact, the day before Courtois made his debut for Genk at the age of 16 because the story had come out that the Genk goalkeeper and reserve goalkeeper were both either injured or ill and that this 16-year-old kid was going to play the next day. He couldn't get a hold of Courtois, phoned Courtois' dad and his dad said he's in the back garden bouncing on the trampoline. And from that moment on, he had this great relationship with Courtois. He saw him coming and that was reflected in the game from uh, an early age. That was obviously before he went on to play for Chelsea. Atletico Madrid on loan. And now Real Madrid. Christoph's a, a great example because a, a lot of the listeners to this podcast probably follow him on, on Twitter now as the authoritative voice on, on Belgian football. And that comes back to the sort of relationships that you just touched on with the biggest players that everybody wants a, a piece on. And Christoph's someone who has that direct line. And I, I don't doubt that if he wasn't a, a journalist working at the highest level, then he, he could easily go and be a scout because he obviously has, has the eye for it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Next up is a short piece on a glitch with one football manager release that landed the game's creators a slot on Watchdog, the BBC's consumer champion programme, then ruled by acerbic game show matron Anne Robinson. And then Kenny is back with a look at the legends of the game, those players who would develop into elite talents in football manager, but whose real life careers tracked a less impressive trajectory. One of them, Tonton Zola Makuku, 
would become our book's emblem and eventually help us launch it in London in real life. This section was a huge task for Kenny. He was trying to locate and talk to dozens of players who in some cases had barely made a dent in professional football and ask them about a game that had made them famous in some way because of their failure to deliver on the potential a scout had picked up on when they were in their teenage years. I remember that looking back that we had decided on the, the name of the chapter before I tried to track a single one of these guys down and I think systematically worked through a list of about 90 players, some knockbacks, some dead ends, some people we managed to get to in the end. My biggest concern was that I got three quarters of the way through it without actually getting Tontonzola Makuku. And I thought we can't have this chapter named after him without without landing him. But it became a real became a real challenge from I think people were tracked down to cattle farms in Accra to coffee mornings in Norway. Uh, there was no no two stories were the same. But I had a long list and there were certain key people on it that I was determined to get. Tonton was the big one. I think Tonton was the one that we were absolutely desperate to land. And as I said, we got three quarters of the way through nothing. I had spoken to Swedish journalists. I'd been all over the usual usual platforms, Facebook, Twitter, forums. And it was just one dead end after another. This guy had gone into almost complete isolation. Nobody, nobody knew anything about him anymore. And then there was a Tonton Zola Makuku Facebook Appreciation Society and there was a post from about four years earlier from a Mary Makuku. So I had I had my doubts about Mary Makuku and our, our links to Tonton, but sent her a DM, slid into her DMs, and in the wee small hours of, of a morning, there was an email from Tonton Zoom that just said, I hear you've been looking for me. And honestly, it sounds so sad saying it now, but it was one of the best moments of my life because... <laughs> I had become a, a real obsession with tracking this obscure, little-known Swedish playmaker down. Okay, so we should just pause there. Tonton's story is by no means done. But just for the listeners um, who perhaps aren't football manager obsessives and haven't read the book, Tonton Zola Makuku is a player who, in the real world, in about 2001 was um, a youth player, would now be called an academy prospect at Derby County. Um, and in the game from that year, season 01-02, he would invariably develop into one of the best talents in the world. There were a lot of players like this, but for some reason, Tonton was the one people who played the game would remember and, and, and talk about. But his real-life career didn't go the same way as his virtual career. So after that initial contact on email, what happened next? It was a really difficult balancing act, not, not just with Tonton, but a, a few other guys, because as much as this is nostalgia for us, for a lot of the guys, it's almost traumatic because at the stage where they were recognised in the game, this guy's going to be a wonder kid, he's going to be the next big thing. A lot of them had that in their heads as well. And in most cases, I mean, we, there was a few people on that list. Um, Anders Svensson had a really good career. Kennedy back here, Sioglu. Had a, had a really good career but for a lot of the guys the daily promise wasn't fulfilled so imagine being them and having that hype and then trying to get your head around that and then 10-15 years somebody comes on and wants to talk to you about a book that I think if you don't get the balance right is almost taking the mick out of your uh, some real setbacks in your life it was a case of walking on eggshells with them and Tonton we talked for a, a long time on via via email he sort of hinted at a few of the 
the things that stopped him achieving what he wanted to, to do in football. And these were some real personal challenges that he'd had to overcome from a really difficult lot in life. And he, he talked about moving to this obscure, I think it was an island, um, and really having a low profile. He'd done the whole champ man 0102 craze at the time and had all the press on the back of that. But he really was, de- he deliberately had this this low profile. And I, he wasn't the only one. I, I remember speaking to Mark Kerr initially and I think he was about weirded out by the whole thing. Now, some of these guys really had to be convinced that this, this project was a, a labour of love and... And they were going to be respected as part of that process. It was, um, as, I, as I say, nostalgia for us, but sometimes a, a difficult backstory for them. So you've got this long, long list of players that you're trying to track down and speak to. Were there any from your sort of experiences playing the game that you really wanted to land that you either did or did not? Uh, look, looking back, Ch- Champman 102 was the one that really got me hooked at the time. So that was... Just, that was your Mark Kerr's, Kim Shellstrom, Willie Howie. So I think I was able to pick off most of them for the for the book. There weren't really many that, that got away. So it, it was interesting to to put a backstory to the to the wee dots that that uh, entertained me on a on a wet Saturday afternoon in Campbelltown if there wasn't a game on. <laughs> and some of them had reservations, which you've mentioned, and some of them barely knew anything about the game. But I think there was a good clutch of them, who as well as being uh, personalities within the game, were sort of fans of it. I'm, I'm going to butcher pronunciations here, so I apologise in advance, but I remember specific, specifically, especially the Scandinavian ones, Anders Svensson, Bakir Sioglu, Alexander Farnerud, I'm, I'm sure I've got that wrong, but they, they all played the game. To a man, they all signed themselves. I remember Bakir Sioglu, would sign himself for Barcelona or Manchester United because that's who he supported. So most of them had either played the game or, or were, were still playing it. There, there was a few like like Freddie Adu that had no time for it, uh, but I was aware of his of his fame within the game. I think some 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 players from memory would actually fall out with themselves in the game because the real life version would be denying the in game version their dream move and would have to deal with that would deal with that fallout with themselves. But I remember people like Cherno Samba and Mark Kerr got real life moves to, I think it was it was Greece in Mark's case, and he said he was walking into a new changing room, new culture, didn't know anyone, and instantly five or six people knew who he was because because of this virtual reality fame that he had. One of the reasons that Martin and I um, were so keen to to get you to do this part of the book specifically is because Kenny, you're such a nice guy and you're so good at relationship building. And we knew it was going to be difficult to get these guys to sort of see the balancing act that we were doing between this love letter to their role in the in this game and also being respectful that they actually had a real-life career that sometimes didn't go the way that they had hoped it would at the start. So was there any of these guys that you sort of struck up a rapport with and kept in touch with beyond the, the work that you were doing for the book eight years ago? I still speak to Tonton on and off. I've exchanged messages with Tim Sparv. John Welsh was always pretty talkative. I think he was he was at Preston and Tranmere in Liverpool initially. He was a really good guy. Tonton was obviously the, the special case, though. I think standing in a, an airport in London with his name on a, a bit of paper wait, waiting in arrivals was, was pretty surreal. It's a, long, it's a long name to get in one bit of paper as well. So this was the launch event that we did. Um, we sort of boldly took our uh, 
our little gang down to London to connect the real life Tonton Zola Makuku with Sports Interactive, the makers of Football Manager. Um, so as a result, we, the Backpage Press team featuring Tonton Zola Makuku, played a five-a-side game against Sports Interactive. Um, and then Tonton got a great surprise at the, the offices after that, Kenny. It was amazing. They'd, they'd named their meeting room after Tonton with with sign on the front of the door and his his face and I, I, with like a proper ribbon for him to cut. I, I remember him being so humbled and blown away by that. I'm sure he actually shed a tear or two at the time and his partner, his, his lovely partner was over with him for the, the weekend and they just kept talking about it for the rest of the trip, how blown away they were that A, that these people remembered them and, and B, that, that Miles and Kieran and the guys had treated them so well. So to have that permanent reminder on the on the office door was was something special for him. The, the, the game of fives was was an experience in itself as well. Ian was, I don't know, how would you describe his performance in goal? Extrovert? I think Ian was playing to the crowd. I think he was like, he was like a hype man. <laughs> I was definitely all graft and no craft. Ian was definitely playing for the punters and Tonton was exactly how you would want him to be. Moments of absolute genius undone by... The, the odd moment of another kind there was a memorable penalty miss like we've all got a penalty miss in us but that was the penalty miss of penalty misses in the game's closing moments with the the score tied I'm not sure perhaps we were one down it was either for the draw or for the win uh, we end ourselves a perfectly justifiable penalty it was Hollywood script stuff it had to be Tonton and he, he took the he took the ball placed it on the spot and um, he made some bad choices after that and we did not return to Scotland victorious. The next big section of the book was crowdsourced stories from the fanatical players of Football Manager, those for whom the search for realism led to some surreal behaviour. Again, the assist goes to Sports Interactive, who vouched for us with the massive and dedicated online communities around the game and helped us to collate these remarkable stories. They are absolutely burned and etched into my soul, some of the ones that, that appeared in this chapter. There were some great ones. I mean, the the shaking the the bedroom doorknob, pretending it's a cup final. I mean, that that's pretty standard. There were the, there was the guys that were playing away in Europe, a game in Turkey, and they wanted to recreate that welcome to hell atmosphere. So they lit a bit of paper on fire and put it in the the bin in the room, and it started an actual fire. They had to jump on that and get it extinguished. I think Adam Clary gave us a great tale of over celebrating a a goal in his his living room to or. Or to the extent that the police were called by a concerned neighbour thinking that someone was was in trouble. So, I mean, there's there's that end of the spectrum and then there's others who were the super diehards who, who would admit that they had maybe got their priorities askew a wee bit and had lost relationships through devotion to the game. So Yeah. Did it feel like you you know, did it feel like a piece of journalism at that point? And I guess with the um I guess with the players such as Tonton as well, you know, did it feel like a piece of journalism or did it feel like a, a silly bit of fluff writing about a computer game? It never, it never felt like a silly bit of fluff. I suppose, I suppose when you're a journalist, you're you're pushing for the the line, the the best the best line you can get. But genuinely, in some of these cases, you were almost telling people that that's enough. You don't need to go any further. We've got what we need. We don't want you to to really reopen old wounds. It did make me feel better about my own my own level of devotion back in the day because I think my 
dedication to it extended to setting the formation that the reserve team played and then trawling the Scandinavian market through every youth team. So I did feel better about my, myself having heard to the, the lengths that some of these people went to. <laughs> and what about the players at Hibs? Does it ever come up? John McGinn certainly was always was always big into it. It still does come up. It's definitely taken seriously. Look at Manchester United manager now is someone who grew up playing championship manager, football manager, Andre Villas Boas, uh, Jose Mourinho. There's plenty, plenty of people have have openly admitted to, to dabbling in it. And just before we close with a series of interviews with people from within the world of football who grew up playing football manager. Ian McIntosh returns with another task that it's hard to imagine anyone else pulling off. He sat down with Dr. Simon Moore, Head of Psychology at London Metropolitan University, for a clinical examination of his own quasi-addiction to the game. Really, it's much, much funnier than it sounds. Yeah, I cannot remember where we found the, the doctor from. I think we, we went to the British Association, uh, Association of Psychiatrists or something like that and then to their press office and then trying to find anyone who had this kind of um, this kind of experience so that they wouldn't basically just laugh us out of the room. And the transcript in there, I mean, obviously, you know, a few things have been tweaked for size and timing and stuff, but it's not actually that far away from the, the verbatim conversation that we had because he was very, very funny in a very dry sort of way. But I'll just always remember the fact that the, the definition that he had of addiction, which was, you know, you do A, you get B, and then you want to do A again. And some people have it with a line of cocaine and some people have it with a drink. Um, and some people have it just on like the sense of seeing the fruit come up on the fruit machine. Um, and in this, there was a very clear kind of process of seeing a thing or experience a thing which you know was probably your team winning and getting a feeling and, be- and beginning to get addicted to that feeling um and he was very clear about the fact that actually it, it was an addiction you were living your life in a way that wasn't by any stretch of the stretch of the, i mean it just it wasn't an orthodox thing to do but it was a kind of orthodox addiction. Um, but my favourite bit was when he said, I said, is it a problem? And he said, I don't know. Is it? You know, is it causing your life a problem? Has your, has your wife left you? Have you lost your job? Are you missing deadlines? Said, no. He said, well, there you go. It's a problem when it's a problem. But if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. And that seemed like such a sort of simple thing to say. But actually, it, it made me feel a lot better, to be honest, because I was playing that game quite a lot. It just reads like a comedy sketch. You know, it reads as though Dr. Simon Moore, he is completely in on the joke that he's actually playing along. He's actually quite sharp and, and nimble and, and witty himself. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a fantastic, fast, funny read. But planted in there is that sort of, sort of language of therapy that often, that stuff often boils down familiar and, and retrospectively obvious truths into very simple phrases and that is that is a, a a nice moment when you basically say do i have a problem but now when i think about it there, there was there was another point in it where i said i don't understand why i feel compelled to play this game because my life is is football you know i am i if, if you have a press pass and uh, an understanding employer, then it's basically a universal season ticket. 
you know, you can just go and watch football everywhere. I said, look, I'm, I'm in football. Why would I need to simulate being in football? And he said, you're not, though, are you? Because you're not in the dressing room. And this was a guy who knew the limitations of my journalistic career long before I did. He said, you're not in the dressing room. You're not, you know, living with, with these people. You're not. And he was, I was like, oh, God, yeah, he's right. I am basically, my entire football journalism career was sitting in the shadows throwing poo at people. Um, it, it never really got much more than that. So he was going, well, you know, you're playing this game because your subconscious craves acceptance of the world of football and the immersion in the world of football that your real life isn't producing. I was like, whoa, <laughs> mate. Yeah, that's right. He was right. He had me, he had me completely um, banged to rights very, very quickly. Yeah, usually you'd have to pay a lot of money for, for that experience. Well, yeah, and usually it takes people months or even years to figure out what dick I am, but he just got it. He just got it straight away. That's harsh, Ian. And that's all for this episode of Between the Lines. Thank you to Kenny Miller and Ian McIntosh for looking back on this act of folly eight years on, especially Ian, who was recovering from COVID-19 at the time. There will be a sports movie special coming your way next week. Until then, I hope you and those around you are safe and well, and thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.